Welcome back to Demand Gen Chat. I'm your host, Tara Robertson, head of Demand Gen at Chili Piper. In this episode, I'm joined by Liam Maroney and Grace Ann McDonald, co-founders of Storybook Marketing. We chat about the biggest misconceptions marketers today have about demand generation and how their team is helping B2B marketing teams work more closely with their outbound sales teams to generate new revenue in this so far tricky year for marketers. Hope you enjoy my conversation with Grace Ann and Liam. Grace Ann, Liam, so happy to have you on the show today. Thanks so much for joining. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. We're excited. Yeah, really excited. We just caught up on your own podcast last week. So this feels <laughs> like a reunion, which is fun. Um, I'd love to start with something fun. Um, I've heard that you have a hot take of your own that you'd love to share with us. So let's start with that and see where the conversation takes us. Yeah. I think we we try to pride ourselves on not being hot take marketers. I think demand generation is hard enough without trying to point fingers at who's doing it wrong and why they're doing it wrong. I think the thing that we often see, though, is that demand generation is still largely misunderstood which is quite surprising. For as much conversation as happens about it, there's still a lot of fundamental misunderstandings about it. And I think one of the biggest that we see is that demand generation is not a channel. It's not a tactic. It's it's not even a particular person on the team. It is a go-to-market strategy. It's a pillar of a marketing strategy in the same way that you've got a brand strategy, you've got a messaging and positioning strategy, you have to have a demand generation strategy that is embedded throughout the team. And a lot of times what we see is that demand generation is sort of satisfied by a, a box check. Oh, we have a demand gen person on our team. They run paid media. Ergo, we do demand gen. It's much harder than that. I think maybe the hottest take I have right now, and one of the things that's always tended to bother me about a lot of the advice <clears throat> that you hear out there in regards to demand gen, is that just because something work for someone else doesn't mean it's going to work exactly the same way for you. And I think oftentimes certain tactics and efforts that had somewhat of an early adopter advantage. So, you know, those teams and companies who were some of the first to do it experienced really great results from it. And I don't think that everyone who comes after them and tries to do the same thing can expect to have the same results because you're not the same company you know, times change, the world evolves. Um, and so my, I guess my final point on that take is that my hope for people out there looking for advice for their own programs would stop looking so much for that like silver bullet, like that thing that is the thing that is the answer to their program because it was the answer to someone else's and instead focus on just learning their own programs really well. Yeah, I love that. Both of those. I, I tend to agree with you. The hot take thing is it's fun to start a conversation, but I always like to say, I don't know your audience, <laughs> not as well as you do anyway. So I like to put that caveat in there. But um, going back to what you were saying earlier, Liam, I love that you said it's not just one person on the team for demand gen. It's not just paid. I've definitely been in interviews for other roles in the past where it was clear that your role is AdWords and tweaking those results. And that's kind of it and it's not very strategic or fun to me. I know some people love the paid side, but a lot of times for demand gen, you have to think about just the overall go to market and what that looks like. And it creates a lot of confusion because the amount of times we hear people kind of saying like, well, is that, should that be under demand gen? Should that be part of demand gen? It creates this really weird silo where you have to try and identify, like, should content be part of demand gen? Should it work with it? Is ABM a component of demand gen or a separate track to it? And 
it just it's trying to define it really rigidly makes it really difficult because it looks different for almost every program because it depends on which mm-hmm. channels generate demand for your business and how your audience actually buys your product. So when you're working with a new marketing team, how do you help them define what demand gen means for them? Or do they usually come to you with a pretty set idea already and they want to kind of scale what's already working for them? You know, we tend to have teams coming to us, you know, with their demand gen program looking a certain way, being comprised of certain things, but typically being open to if this isn't right, tell us how to change it, tell us what to add or how to, you know, sort of reposition things. And, you know, I think the perspective that we always come into it with is sort of what we're just talking about here. You need to start with that fundamental understanding of knowing who buys your product, why they buy your product, and ultimately your demand gen program should be a reflection of reaching the people who buy your product. And to the point you made, that's going to look different for everybody. Um, Maybe some teams, that's a huge investment in content and paid. Maybe other teams, it's a blend of paid and outbound. And maybe you're also doing events and maybe you're doing some stuff with paid search and maybe you're doing some stuff with community. And so it's that, I think, sort of paralysis by analysis and that mm-hmm. overwhelm of all these different channels and tactics that teams have at their disposal. I think the mistake we see teams making is thinking they need to incorporate all of them just because it's available to do when we like to take that step back instead and say, okay, let's focus on who your audience is and how you best reach them. And then let's focus on those channels and tactics and making sure that that fits together like a well-oiled machine. And if you're working with a team that say they just really aren't sure where their customers are finding them today or what's working, how would you recommend they figure that out before you can move forward? I think the honest answer is it's probably one of two parts. I think there's audience research, which you just have to invest time doing, which is really not just figuring out who your audience is, but where they spend time, what channels they're on, what kind of content they're reading, what sources they're already getting information from, and what the white spaces are between it. And the other side of it is sales is often the best place for the answer because they're the ones who are successfully figuring out where people are coming into the process and why. And reverse engineering that is often the best because sales teams often succeed in different ways. Some sales teams do really well when they are in person and they're at an event. And sometimes demand generation supports by creating more of those situations. And some of them don't have to be. So it's often understanding how do you sell best as a company and how does marketing then support that sales effort with the right marketing structure around it. And I know we were just saying every team is different, but just more broadly in your experience, are marketers working closely enough with sales now, or is that still a bit of a push that you have to give them to work with their sales teams? Never been shy about this, the fact that I came into marketing from the sales side. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've always had that sales perspective, particularly that marketing sales interaction and like that kind of that handoff in mind, um, because I do think it's one of the trickiest parts to get right about marketing and specifically demand gen. Um, I, I think the sort of economic uncertainty over the last six months and the challenges a lot of teams are facing right now has led to, at times, competition between those teams for budget, for resources, for attribution. I mean, I think the attribution um, tension and, and conflict can sometimes run high when metrics are so separated that is it the result of marketing's inbound or is it because of a sales outbound? And I think it takes a lot of 
partnership building between those two functions to accept that sort of rising ties lift all boats effect that, you know, it's one number. We're all working towards the same goal. Attribution isn't this perfect linear sort of um, funnel. You know, everything kind of amplifies each other. I think if you look back to a couple years ago, and I think those teams tended to be a bit more siloed and they're starting to come closer together, but I think there's still work to be done in how they effectively work together. And I think as well, it's, I've rarely seen a case where marketing and sales aren't trying to work together. Like unless you're a really toxic mm-hmm. situation, there's the, the intentions have always been there. It's usually, it comes down to either the way that they are being gold that puts them against one another, or just the way that the leadership thinks that they should work with each other. It usually starts there because like on the second one, it's so common to see this perception that marketing is supposed to be like step one and sales is step two. Marketing generates the leads, the leads go to sales. If they don't work, then then marketing has failed sales. And if sales doesn't close, then sales has failed marketing. And it becomes this weird back and forth. And exactly like Chie just said, like it is a rising tide. Outbound should get better as marketing gets more effective. If more people have heard of you, it's more people will respond to outbound. So all of it kind of works in harmony. And when you start to really build really rigid, well, sales generated pipeline was this amount and marketing generated was this amount, it's just not the way it happens. And it ends up creating a competition. And you end up starting to kind mm-hmm. of, you, you skew your attention away. I remember I'm not proud of it, but I remember even at companies where I worked really well with the sales team, I still remember being almost disappointed when deals would come in that weren't sourced through marketing, as though that was a failure of some sort. And that's like, because you feel like you've done like, ah, we didn't touch that deal in any way at all. There was no marketing touch point. And that looks like a failure. But the reality is you just may not have been able to measure it. The impact that you had was the reason they probably bought it. Marketing, people don't buy brands they don't know and they don't trust, especially when you're spending a hundred grand on a piece of software. We've often seen the example of a demo request that comes inbound after someone on the sales team outbounded to a couple of different people at that company. And I struggle to believe that's a complete coincidence. And so I think it's that attribution competition is where the source of a lot of tension often comes from, particularly when teams are in such high pressure environments as, as we have all been in recently. Um, And I think the solution to that is pulling that goal together into one number that everyone works towards. Yeah, we see that all the time where someone will come inbound and we're like, oh, that's weird. They just came directly to the site. There's always another reason, right? Either they heard from a rep and often now we have self-reported attribution on our confirmation thank you page. And sometimes they'll just put like, this rep was awesome, love their emails. And it's really cool to see when something really stuck with them. And maybe they didn't click through on that email, which most of us just want to do our own research, right? So it makes a ton of sense. When you're talking about, I mean, I'm fully on agreement that you can't measure every single touch point, then you need to have that pipeline and revenue target. But what metrics should marketers be looking at and trying to move the needle on? Is there certain metrics that your customers come to you for help with? Or is it just really hitting pipeline and revenue? I mean, I think ultimately... Ultimately, marketing should be contributing to revenue. Revenue should increase for sure. And marketing sourced pipeline is definitely a valuable output because you should be having, you should be ultimately looking at a customer acquisition cost. The problem is that I think it's connecting the outcomes to what are the things that you're doing to contribute to that outcome is where it gets messy. 
Because while you should ultimately be looking for pipeline, not every tactic that you're doing should create pipeline or it shouldn't be measured that way. If you're running a LinkedIn program, not everything is supposed to generate immediate like opportunities from every post you put up. Every email isn't supposed to generate an, a meeting. Like, so it's really about holistically understanding what the outcome of marketing should be, which is definitely pipeline, revenue, uh, sales velocity, retention. Like All of those are valuable metrics. It's just not everything you do has to directly be able to show a breadcrumb trail that goes towards it. That, I think, is where it gets really complicated. And I'm, it sounds like you've had this conversation before, so I'm curious, how do you, con- I guess, convince or win over teams that are set on trying to measure everything that marketing is doing and putting out? I mean, I think even like the example you gave of the self-reported attribution, that's such an interesting way of showing how wrong attribution can often be versus mm-hmm. what the systems and your best measurements say people came in through versus what actually did. Like, I think firstly, it's it's important to just acknowledge that the way people buy is not linear. Like people don't read an email, click, go to a website and go, oh, I downloaded that one ebook. I'm convinced I'm going to buy a $60,000 piece of software. It just doesn't work like that. I think the most effective way to do it that we find when we work with clients is often showing them exactly how their program does work first and foremost. Like here's where pipeline comes from within your program today. And when you look at it through that lens, you often see, well, maybe we're measuring certain channels incorrectly because what we found, you'll go into a program and they may see, oh, events are really where 40% of our pipeline comes from and paid search is generating 20% of the pipeline. And then the rest of it is some inefficient mix. And when you start to look at it through that lens, you start to realize that, oh, maybe this channel isn't supposed to generate directly attributed revenue, but maybe it's supposed to impact the other channels. And I think once you break down a program and you say, this is where pipeline is coming from, it starts to be able to segment your program saying, okay, well then our revenge strategy should be very much a marketing pipeline sourced deal generating channel. But our LinkedIn channel may be more about driving more awareness, driving more people when they come to the booth. Like it may, it may be more of an assisting channel or a brand building channel. And I think once you start to look at it that way, you begin to immediately find inefficiencies because we've seen this a ton of times, they're probably generating or reporting on LinkedIn as how many leads did we get? And what was the ROI of that channel? And when you look at everything through an ROI channel, you end up you end up seeing everything incorrectly. And you can end up killing channels that helped other channels. And then it becomes this sort of internal competition within the channels, which is even worse. And I, I think that that I guess kind of mandate to prove ROI in every single thing that they do is one of the biggest challengers that like marketing teams and marketers face um because to the point Liam just made like not everything has that perfectly attributable ROI and the measurement of some things is quantitative but the measurement of other things is qualitative and you know when we come into programs as you know Liam was just mentioning there the perspective we really take is first let's make sure you're measuring channels the way that they should be measured. So how are you measuring it, for example, with LinkedIn? Like, are you just measuring it based on lead gen? Let's measure it a bit differently. That's probably not how we should be measuring it because that's not really what it's intended to be used for in a lot of cases. And so the first really question is measuring channels the way that they're intended to be used or by the way they're intended to be used. And then once you've got clarity on that, then it's a matter of thinking about, okay, now, are those channels actually accomplishing 
are they doing that thing well for us? And that oftentimes is really impactful for teams that still want to measure a lot of things, but it's more about measuring them correctly. I also think some of them, like you should never expect an ROI from certain things because it can completely color how you do things. Like community is a perfect example. If you approach community as a, when will we see the return on it? You're going to start selling into that community and you will, you will create the exact opposite outcome that you're looking for. Yeah, you might even get kicked out depending yeah, on the community. You very right? likely will. Totally, totally. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a great point of going backwards from what can this channel do for us, not always going to leads and ROI immediately. And a, a podcast yeah. is such a good example of one of these things because when you look at a podcast, like even really successful podcasts compared to like lead generation, the numbers are usually much, much smaller. Like when you ask, like even really popular podcasts in the marketing space, how many subscribers do they get? Sometimes it's hundreds. Like it's, it's by all accounts what feels like a really, really small number. And yet when you step back and think about what is actually happening, someone is spending 45 minutes listening to a conversation. That's exponentially more valuable than someone clicking on an ad. And so like it's about understanding what is it supposed to do and what does success look like? Having it being just part of the ecosystem, being mentioned, being referenced, like the impact can be huge, but the numbers can be non-existent. Yeah, we're in an interesting boat where we've had success on the number side for the podcast, but it's, I'm sure you know this, it's a black hole of metrics. So I can show download numbers, but we don't know who those people are. I have to assume they're qualified because to your point, they're listening to us talk about demand gen for 45 minutes. So I don't know who else would be listening to that. Um but it's a bit of a black hole trying to show things like ROI for a podcast because all you see is a chart of subscriber numbers going up and that's kind of the best that you're going to get. So you do have to, again, knowing how the channel can be measured is important. Plus there's all these intangibles come along with it too. Like, I mean, even just on a podcast example, like the, the guests you have become not just connections, but they become potential evangelists. Things can get mentioned on a podcast. People can go off and suddenly it, it gets you invited to another podcast, like all of it starts to build on itself that goes way beyond subscribers and downloads. I'm curious, going back to the kind of just channels in general piece, um, when you're working with a new marketing team, are there any channels or tactics that you, not that they're going to work for every single team, but that you typically come back on or back to regularly to try again with most teams that are new to you? I mean, I think the one that comes to mind immediately, and I know we spoke a bit about this when you were just on our podcast recently, but outbound. I think it's often a goldmine um, for the teams that we come in and work with. And I know there's always this back and forth debate of does outbound, do, do SDR, BDR teams belong to marketing? Is outbound a demand gen strategy? Should it be part of your demand gen strategy? And I very much believe it should be. As we've talked about a bit before, I think marketing programs, especially even like ABM efforts, are that much better when complemented by an outbound motion. And I think the outbound function or motion is often underutilized or being misused. And so there's there tends to be a lot of effort in really course correcting that, fine tuning it, re you know pointing it in the right direction. Um, and I think especially right now. Just with the situation a lot of teams are in, in regards to budgets and resources, it's one of the biggest levers that teams have within their control right now. Um, 
and provided there's clear alignment between sales and marketing and clarity on who you're targeting, who your personas are, the, the value that you bring, why they buy. I think there's a lot of potential in course correcting and fixing an outbound function. That's the one that comes to mind immediately. And I think it, it comes up or it has been coming up the most frequently as of late. But what's your perspective, Liam? Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I think there's a lot of channels where you can easily see where money can get misused and paid search is a big one. And I know it, mm. it comes up a lot in different conversations. I You see it often with paid search where people go there first because it is a very bottom of funnel channel. You're looking for people who are exhibiting really high intent and very often people find immediate success with it. Sometimes it's because they're basically bidding on branded keywords and it's sort of, you're you're kind of capturing what was already there, but sometimes you do find it. And what happens a lot and I've been guilty of this as well, is that you start to go, how can we get more out of that channel? It works so well. And you just start loosening the parameters a bit more, a bit more. The AdWords reps are very happy to tell you ways you can spend more budget on the tool. And what ends up happening is you start bidding on things that are not really, they're adjacent keywords, they're broad match keywords. And you end up looking at a channel that works really well and not accepting, it's probably going to cap it really, really quickly which I think is the big thing about demand capture. There's only so much out there. And once you hit that limit, that's the limit. You have to be creating more or you have to be adding more in at the top. And that's often where I think a lot of the inefficiencies come. They just try and loosen and widen the aperture so that more can fit in. But if there's only a limited amount in there, there's only a limited amount in there. Yeah, it's interesting. I think those are both kind of pointing back to the same, not issue, but the same concern, which is there's only so many people kind of raising their hand right now to buy from us. So how can we go find more qualified people? And if outbound is a solution that someone wants to try, then that's great. But are you seeing specific, I don't want to say mistakes, but maybe just low-hanging fruit on the outbound side that people are missing when working with outbound teams? Is it usually just misalignment and not working close enough together? I often see them either going after the wrong audience. So to your point about low-hanging fruit, like let's say, for example, you sell into the marketing function. What I often see a lot of teams doing is having their outbound teams go after the CMO. And there's probably a lot of hanging fruit if you went after directors or VPs of marketing. Mm -hmm. Like the opportunity is maybe there to be captured. You're just going after the wrong audience with that channel or tactic. In terms of being misused, I often see, unfortunately, a lot of messages and outbound emails not actually getting in front of people due to just super, super high volumes of sending that are leading many to go to spam, which means they're not even being opened or maybe they're being blocked. And so it's that really course correction of like how your outbound motion is just really oriented and focusing on quality over quantity. I also think there's a coordination piece that often gets missed. Again, it goes back to what I was saying about you know, a lot of the times the the outbound teams, they, they see marketing as the thing that gives them leads that they can follow up on, which usually is the the wrong way because it's usually ebook downloads. The conversion rates are wrong. People are not in market. And what you often don't see is the teams coordinating, saying, these are the accounts that we're going to focus our budget on. These are the the segment that we're really going to invest our budget in. And there's going to be a coordinated effort on the outbound side to be also going to those people. Because what you often see is when you look at what lists the outbound team is going after, 
sometimes they can be going after a segment that marketing doesn't have the budget to be advertising to, may have very low awareness, and you end up, you know, you you end up weakening your chances because you should be talking to the audience who's most aware of you and has the highest affinity for you. And the more that that's coordinated, the better the chances should be. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. I know a lot of people call that kind of marketing warming up accounts, which I don't know if I'm a huge fan of that term, but it makes sense that you would want to be in front of the same audience that your outbound team is going after. Do you typically recommend marketers look at things like intent data or lead scoring, or is it a more kind of simplified approach that you take? The lead scoring one, I think, is that one is usually not wrong, but they're very often put too much time and effort into the lead scoring to create this perfect model. And I mean, all the time and all the times I was in-house, the amount of times that we went to AI lead scoring and, and like all this sort of like intelligent lead scoring things, they're helpful, but they're directional. And I think this idea that you can create some perfect score, and I have tried to be that marketer who engineered this, like, oh, this once it hits this score, this is this is the score. All it is is it's it's a directional filter to just try and identify who's engaged, who's not engaged. But it this idea that there's a threshold at which someone is ready to talk to sales, there's no scientific backing behind it. It's not mathematically correct. And what in what inevitably happens, the more you pursue an effort to create a perfect score, the more you'll have people fall underneath that score and get missed. I think some teams have seen intent as like the silver bullet. And there's certainly value in it, but it's a matter of how you use it and how it's incorporated with the rest of your program. And where I often see teams go wrong with it is tracking intent terms based on how they describe their product or how they think people talk about their product. And so I think the most important part of how you leverage intent is where you start from and making sure that the terms you're tracking and how you're utilizing it is truly informed by how the market talks about your product. I think on the intent part, the things that I think we've seen go wrong is often, I think, just because someone is exhibiting intent that they're in market, that's not a replacement for marketing to that audience. If if you're reaching out to someone who is showing an, an intense signal for the category that you do, and then you've never been any doing any marketing to them, you're probably too late. Firstly, there are false flags, and you have to be aware of what a false positive looks like in intent and be able to kind of bake those in and not just say like, yep, they're in market, everyone, let's rally behind this account. It's more about how do you use it to try and coordinate your efforts better to be able to kind of hone in on the right people, but it's not you know, it, it's not the this kind of like, wow, we know something that that like no one else knows. Like you still have to be in their consideration set. And that that happens long before those really high intense signals pop up. And I, I realize this is a vast oversimplification, but I think the easiest way to think about intent or an intent tool is that it's information. And what really matters is what you do with that information. No, that's a really great way to put it. I think you're right about both of those being kind of pitched as silver bullets to marketing teams, which I understand why <laughs> companies position themselves that way, obviously. Um, but I've definitely been in that situation where we thought, okay, as soon as this lead scoring is right, everything's going to be perfect. Everything's going to be easier. We won't have to do as much like scrambling behind the scenes. But at least on the lean small teams that I've been on, our time is usually better spent actually launching new marketing programs than sitting in a room and trying to whiteboard what the perfect lead score should be. So 
by the time you get that perfect lead score, perfect funnel done, the world changes again. Right. Or you'll get feedback from a sales rep that, oh, actually, no, this wasn't great. Mm -hmm. So maybe we can go back to the drawing board. (laughs) And counterintuitively, the longer you spend on a lead scoring model, the higher the expectations that you set that you've got something scientific. Like the more honest Mm. you are with sales, which is like, this is just a directional filter. We just want to try and get rid of as much noise as possible. But if you go in front of a team and you're like, look at the model that I built, like it takes this into account and these eight data points, (laughs) the second it's wrong, you've lost all credibility. I think it's sometimes lost that marketing is both an art and a science. And I think that idea of ROI, and again, to no fault of their own, the pressures that are on marketers to prove ROI in every single thing that they do leads us down this path of trying to make every aspect of marketing scientific. And I think there's parts of it that certainly are, but I think there's a lot of parts of it that are more of that art form as well. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I feel like to get that art piece right, you need to just get things in market and see how your audience responds. You can't figure that out behind the scenes, right? You have to get them. I use this example often and Grayson hates it every single time I do because it's extremely boring. But marketing is very, very similar to economics. And this is relevant, I promise, in that economics also tries to have these mathematical models, but you're trying to predict why people make financial decisions. And you only have to look at what happened with Silicon Valley Bank. A run on a bank is a very emotional reaction, even though Mm -hmm. at base level, like, things were okay. It could have been handled. Like you can't predict how people will emotionally react and how people buy is a heavily emotional thing. That's a really great point, especially and I people like to say that B2C is more emotional. I've heard that before, but I feel the opposite because in B2B, if you buy the wrong tool and something breaks, I mean, you could lose your job potentially if something really gets messed up, right? Where it, I, I mean, I don't feel that way if I buy the wrong pair of shoes or whatever. But it's a little bit more emotional when it comes and to work. Especially as marketers, there's no question that we there are tools we want to buy because our peers use them. And you look around, you're mm-hmm. like, oh, I keep hearing this one mentioned the podcast. Like, that's the tool that if I had that one, like, I've made it. That's when I'm like big league and I've got all the really cool tech. Like, that's an incredibly emotional decision where you're now trying to justify, well, all the best marketers use it. So I should I should build, make a business case for it. Like, that, that's entirely emotionally driven. And do you have any advice for marketers that are trying to take that approach with their marketing? So they know it's emotionally driven. They're not trying to be too scientific and ROI focused. But at the same time, especially now, their CFO, their board are saying, you just have to get leads. You have to focus on lead gen and things that we can tie direct ROI to. How would you approach that conversation? I think this is the hard part, especially of being a marketing leader, because what can very easily happen right now and is happening for a lot of people is all those really exciting topics we were all talking about last year are now not topics anymore. Let's ungage mm-hmm. everything. Let's think long-term. That all goes out the window when you're told you need to hit targets and you've got half the budget that you used to in order to get there. And the knee-jerk reaction that CFOs go to, rightfully so, that some CEOs go to is, well, we need to measure everything. We need to get the ROI of everything and anything that's not generating anything, we cut it. And you often get the all the shiny projects that you're excited about we're putting on the shelf. They'll come back a few months from now. And that's very fair. But I think the thing that you have to really defend the line on is trying to educate on the difference between short-term and long-term strategies. And you have to be doing both. What ends up happening is there's a huge risk for marketing teams to suddenly only do short-term marketing. 
And short-term marketing is demand capture, which if you're not feeding next quarter and the quarter after it, and you're not changing those things, all the things you're doing right now are going to hit a wall really, really quickly. And I've, I've been in that position where I've made that mistake. And when you see those numbers, when you see the cost per lead suddenly go exponentially up, the conversion rates plummet, and suddenly the demo requests dry up, at those once you hit that point, that's six months to change that. And that, that's a bad position to find yourself into. So like, I get it. It's really hard. It, you have to defend and show value. But you have to try and this is where I think going back to the where in your program generates pipeline is exactly the strength. Once you show that, it's like we, we're going to continue to monitor and be very efficient with these channels, but these other channels contribute to that. And we want to leave some budget that helps them, that builds long term. It's, it's just leaving room for long term. And it's that that idea of it's almost a kind of marketing 101 lesson for leadership teams that, you know, those lead gen tactics are just capturing the people that are in market for your product and the demand that exists. But if you're not doing anything, things that aren't going to result in immediate pipeline now, but pipeline in the future, if you're not doing those things, then you're just pulling from a diminishing, like a a shrinking pool, essentially. Um, And it's that, you know, to Liam's point, defending that concept of marketing and that you can do the things that capture the right now, but if you're not doing the things that create more of it in the future, then you're just going to pull from diminishing returns. And for marketers that are getting pressure to, I mean, for some people, it's dramatically cut back on budget. For some, it's a little bit more of, okay, you have some time, but we need to start making some cuts here and there. How would you recommend they find those programs that they can pause right now while keeping in mind that balance of short and long-term programs? It's never fun to cut budgets. And more often than not, like the better strategies usually find what you're doing incorrectly and reuse that budget correctly. But the reality is that that's generally not how it goes right now. Going back to that whole, what are the outcomes and which channels are you using for the wrong purposes? When you find those inefficiencies, if you're, for example, you know, we've seen this a few times where LinkedIn is being used exclusively as a lead generation channel. And when you back into it, you see that firstly, the cost per leads are really, really expensive. And the outcomes of those leads are generally not very good because they weren't doing any just awareness marketing, affinity marketing. When you look at that objectively, if you're looking at a channel like that, you're you're actively misusing the channel. Like that budget is not being effectively used. Truthfully, it should be repurposed and you should change how you're using LinkedIn. But if you have to show value and you have to cut things, look at what you're just not using correctly because whether you turn it on or turn it off, it's still generating the same output no matter what. Like it's the obvious place to go. And then you try and build back up the case to say, we were not using it correctly. Once budget is available, can we start reallocating it towards these instead? Um, The better one is try and find several of those and put them all into the one channel that you want to, but it's the easier place to find efficiencies. So on a more positive note, (laughs) let's wrap things up. Looking ahead to the future, maybe the rest of this year, is there anything that you're looking forward to? Maybe it's something you're looking forward to testing with a customer, a new tactic. I mean, I'm personally very encouraged by the growth of communities and that community continues to be like a very exciting part of marketing. I think there's, you're seeing a lot more authenticity lately. And I think there, you know, over the past six months and even continuing into this year, there's been a lot of pressures on B2B marketers in particular to sort of, I don't want to say, I guess like level up 
their marketing. And, and there is this, you know, this these challenges that come with having to show efficiency, both in terms of spend and, and how your team is structured. And I think that's going to force all of us to get better. But I think the the awesome thing that's coming with all of these communities and this this like really clear authenticity across the networks and this really growing network of people who want to get better together um, and the emergence of all these communities um, to support that has been really cool to see. One of the things that is happening is I think we're starting to celebrate the small marketing again, which is it's been something that needed to come for a long time, mm -hmm. it, it, especially over the last few years when there was so much funding and people were buying Times Square billboard ads and these huge kind of <laughs> keynote things. When you're in a small, lean marketing team, you can get real imposter syndrome looking around going like, I mean, we can't do that. We can't take out, you know, ads in the Wall Street Journal and things like that, which are great and they're fun. But a lot of the best marketing is it's happening in thoughtful planning. It's happening in audience research. It's those internal, like, really, let's get it right and let's be really intentional. And it's in sometimes like the internal stuff, like the optimization and the tweaking and the adjusting. That really gets celebrated when there's tons and tons of budget floating around and you see all these big ads, but like that's what we're all focusing on right now. And that is often the best and hardest kind of marketing. Yeah. I think it's a really cool shift to, you know, to your point, Liam, like how it's it, it kind of going from like how big can your marketing be to like how good can your marketing be? And I think it's a really cool shift. <laughs> yeah, I love that note to end on. I think I've always had some FOMO around, obviously, like after the Super Bowl, marketers love to talk about all the ads that we saw and what the cool ones were and how many millions people spent on making them. But it's always fun to say like, OK, well, we saw that, but what can we do? Maybe we can do something really cool with a YouTube pre-roll ad that goes to a small audience of 100 people that have already been to our website, right, and seeing what you can do there. So moving on to our quick fire round for these, maybe, Grace Ann, do you want to go for these first and then bring keep it rolling? Um, so is there another marketer you follow that our listeners should go check out? The ones that come to mind immediately, I know Liam would agree. Um, Amanda and Tibidad and Rand Fishkin, really all of Sparktora's content um, mm -hmm. is amazing. But the two of them are just such phenomenal thought leaders in our space. Anyone to add on that, Liam? Justin Rowe has content on LinkedIn ads. It's some of the most sophisticated, detailed, like here's how content I think I've ever seen on LinkedIn. It's, it's fascinating. It feels like you're getting like a PhD in LinkedIn ads every time I read his stuff. Um, Caitlin Borgoyne, for sure. Her stuff mm -hmm. on buyer psychology is just incredible. She has one of the best newsletters that is out there. Nice. I'll put links to all of those in the show notes for anyone who isn't familiar, but I'm a huge fan of all of those people already. Um, what's an under the radar? It could be a channel or a tactic that your team or that your customers' teams are really loving right now. As I sort of just mentioned, I think it's emerging more, but it's still somewhat under the radar in terms of a, a marketing channel or a tactic, and that's communities. So investing, you know, I think probably the biggest one that comes to mind right now is like Pavilion, you know, investing paid resources, um, both paid and organic, you know, in those communities as a channel. I think um, people are participating in those communities, but as like a channel or tactic, I think it's still a bit under the radar. I would say audience research and audience understanding is still under the radar. I know there was a lot of conversations about talk to your customers, listen to sales calls. Those are really valuable, but going beyond it and saying, where are they spending their time? Who are they listening to? Who influences them? Why? What topics are interesting to them? That's 
that's some of the best gold you have to create really impactful content. And do you use any tools for that? Or is that all just, again, talking to customers? I would, I think it's a combination of a lot of things. You know, we, this is a big thing that we do for customers and it, it depends on the audience. It, like you'll get great stuff from sales calls. You'll get great stuff from talking to customers. You'll get great stuff from just good old fashioned Google. There are tools like SparkTor that Grace, I mentioned, phenomenal way of trying to do research on there. Um, it, it, there's a lot you have to kind of decide on how to use that. Like it's information and you have to decide what to do with it, but it's a great tool for finding stuff. And lastly, where can our audience go to find out more about you or follow the content that you're putting out? So you can find us both on LinkedIn um, as well as our site, storybookmarketing.io. Um, we've got a form there on the site too if folks want to reach out directly. Great. Thank you so much. Really appreciated talking to you both. Thank, Thank you for you. having us. Great. And thanks everybody for listening. Thanks for listening to Demand Gen Chat. Demand Gen Chat is a Chili Piper podcast hosted by Tara Robertson and produced by me, Nola McCoy. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a five-star rating on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. It only takes five seconds and helps other marketers like you discover Demand Gen Chat. Also, if you'd like to have a question answered in a future episode, you can connect with Tara Robertson on LinkedIn. Send her a DM with your question and it could be answered on a future episode. Finally, if you've gotten this far and are wondering what Chili Piper even is, Chili Piper helps B2B marketers book more qualified meetings for their sales teams. You can't afford to leave opportunities on the table. So let your leads self-qualify and schedule a time with the right rep instantly. And that's just one of the many revenue impacting things that Chili Piper does. Visit chilipiper.com to learn more. And thanks again for listening. We'll see you on the next episode of Demand Gen Chat.